1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
2: This is part one of a two-part episode. But I warn you now, this is not your usual Murder Mile episode. There are no sympathetic characters. There is no emotional backstory. There is no simple narrative. And there is no one for you to root for even the victim. This is not an episode about an innocent person whose life was cruelly taken. This is a story about lies. The Rosendale murder should have been a simple investigation for the police to solve, as 40 eyewitnesses in a small room were all within feet of a brutal murder. And yet, none of them were able to identify the killer. So don't expect a story about love, loss or sadness. This is a story about how eyewitnesses are accurate, fallible and devious. It's about the difference between truth, lies and misinformation. And how, against the odds, the police managed to solve an unsolvable murder. This is part one. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast and audio-guided walk featuring many of London's untold, unsolved and long-forgotten murders, all set within London's West End. Today's episode is a two-part special on the murder of Michael Barry Porter, a 23-year-old scaffolder from King's Cross who was brutally murdered in a disreputable West End club. And yet, strangely, almost none of the 40 witnesses could identify his killer. Murder Mal is researched using the original police files. It contains moments of satire, shock and grisly details. And as a dramatization of real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds. So that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael. I am your tour guide. And this is Murder Mile. Episode 62 The Rosendale Murder, Part 1. Today, I'm standing in Newport Place, WC2 just north of Leicester Square, on the corner of Shaftesbury Avenue and Charing Cross Road. Two streets south of the Demar Place fire, one street east of the empty shop where Nora Upchurch was cruelly slaughtered, and barely 100 feet from the sad and tragic death of Reginald Gordon West, coming soon to Murder Mine. This is Chinatown. A dirty, cramped tourist trap bookended by two sets of dragon-emblazoned iron gates, which serve no purpose except to distract selfie-takers while their pockets are picked, across a series of short side streets, all strewn with paper lanterns, gaudy pagodas and stone tigers, amidst the annoying pop of firecrackers, the fug of cigarette smoke and the stench of MSG. As the easily duped, gobble-up chop suey, fortune cookies and sweet and sour sauce, none of which are authentically Chinese. In a place so false, you'd half expect the residents to be portrayed, like in those early Charlie Chan movies, by white actors in silk robes and cripplingly tiny shoes, all with bucked teeth and rather racist eye makeup, all bowing and saying, "Ah so, number one son. Most Honourable! God I hate this place! But then again, I do love shredded duck pancakes with plum sauce. Oh sweet irony! Situated at the western end of Chinatown is Newport Place. A recently renovated piazza, 140 feet long by 100 feet wide. Which took Westminster Council a year to lay, then one day after completion they dug it all up and spent the next six months relaying it exactly as it was. Why? I don't know. Boredom? And although this stone-clad piazza is circled by a mix of modern monstrosities, to the left is Ikkyu, a Japanese buffet at number no. 9 Newport Place. A tall, thin, 300-year-old five-storey building slathered in white stucco with three tall windows on each floor and with a mouth-watering array of sushi and sashimi in the ground floor window, as a procession of grinning teeth and rumbling tum-tums enter via an innocuous-looking door to the right, no one is aware that behind this door was once the scene of a very bloody murder. And although Chinatown has a long history of drugs, sex and death, Having tried to investigate murders in this neighbourhood, I've always been blocked by a wall of silence, and this story is no exception. And yet, it was here, at number 9 Newport Place, in the notorious Rosendale Club, on a busy Saturday night, that a man was murdered in plain sight, surrounded by 40 witnesses, and yet they saw almost nothing. By Saturday, the 25th of September 1971, London's long hot summer was over as the first spots of rain sizzled on the steamy streets. And being overcast, the day was grey but the night was cool. With the swinging 60s dead, Hair the Musical halfway through its West End run, the French connection soon to be unleashed on the cinemas, and every stereo pumped to the sounds of Maggie May by Rod Stewart. Get It On by T-Rex and for those with no taste Chirpy Chirpy Cheep Cheep by Middle of the Road. It had been a good day for Michael Barry Porter known to his friends as Mickey as being a scaffolder he didn't work the weekends. As a lifelong Arsenal fan he was on top form having watched the mighty arse thrash Leicester 3-0 at Highbury and having tarted himself up in a maroon polo neck, a blue jacket with a matching handkerchief in the pocket, fawn corduroy trousers and suede shoes. Having parted his shoulder-length mousy brown hair and smelling like a right dandy with a splash of brute aftershave, Mickey headed to the Lord Nelson pub on Copenhagen Street, in the shadow of King's Cross Station. Mickey was a local lad who was easy to spot in a crowded room. Being a well-built, six-foot and clean-cut 23-year-old, with a tattoo of a bird and mother written on his left forearm, and a dagger and mick written on his right, visually Mickey stood out. Being a bit on the loud side, and described as anything from a happy-go-lucky chap to a flash kit, even if you couldn't see him, Mickey made his presence known, but as someone who often rubbed people up the wrong way? He also had the scars to prove it. Sixteen months prior, on the 29th of April 1970, in a dingy boozer called the Phoenix Club in King's Cross, for whatever reason, whether a word, a look, or a mistimed nudge, Mickey had made an enemy of an unknown felon, who, although four inches shorter than him, was violent, easily riled and armed with a shotgun. Being blasted from a few feet away, he should have died. But as the modified gun lacked enough punch, amazingly, Mickey survived the attack. He was left with a scar on his right forearm, a scar across the right side of his jaw, and for the rest of his life, gun pellets remained embedded under his skin. For the police, it should have been an open and shut case. An easily recognisable man shot in a packed nightclub, surrounded by witnesses who knew him and his attacker. But with Mickey being unwilling to give evidence and the witnesses mysteriously silent, his unnamed assailant was tried on the 30th of April 1970 at North London Magistrates Court. Not for assault or attempted murder but for the possession of a loaded weapon. He was given a conditional discharge for 12 months, and the case was dropped. Mickey wasn't a grass or a snitch, and as far as he was concerned, this was all water under the bridge. And yet, this brush with death would have chilling echoes to the fate which awaited him. Saturday the 25th of September 1971 was an ordinary evening, as married couple John and Ann Kavanagh and their pal Charlie Snooks popped into the Lord Nelson pub for a few jars and a giggle with Mickey Porter. As the night went on, the good times rolled. By 10pm, with it still being early, the foursome hopped into Charlie's red Wolsey automatic, drove to the Horns in Shoreditch to 11.30pm, and with closing time having descended, they headed into the West End to find the late-night boozer. The night was fun, unplanned, and uneventful. At little after midnight, Charlie's little red car pulled into Newport Place. The square was dark and sparsely lit, and the stone floor was still damp as the rain had stopped. To some, This seedy side street south of Soho may have seemed intimidating, but as the air was cut by the cheeky Irish banter of Matt Riley, a close pal of Mickey Porter's, who was tall, thin, with curly brown hair and dressed in a splendid light-flowered shirt, he slunk out of his white mini-clubman and greeted his pal with a friendly standing alongside his brother John and his wife Marilyn. As the old and new faces walked across the square to the black front door of number 9, Newport Place and a private members club called The Rose and Dale. Previously known as The Pink Elephant, The Rose and Dale was a small supper club open from 10pm to 1am with a late license for alcoholic drinks, a space to dance, seats to relax and light snacks to nibble. As the first venture into clubbing by transport magnate Frederick Rosendale and the club's manager Clifford Perry, the Pink Elephant had acquired a bad reputation, being branded by the commander of the CID as a dubious haunt of unsavoury and criminal elements. So bad that the club's cabaret artiste Kerry Lane had quit, having witnessed one too many fights and lewd acts committed by its unsavoury clientele. In May 1970, after a stylish renovation, a strict set of rules and new management, it reopened as The Rose and Dale, a supper club co-owned by Clifford Perry and his new partner, Albert Griffiths. Albert was a no-nonsense manager, and as a stocky man with a stern stare and a droopy moustache like a Mexican bandit, having previously spent 15 months in prison for housebreaking and passing forged banknotes. Although his criminal record had been clean for more than a decade, Albert knew how to handle himself and any riffraff. As Mickey Porter and his three pals sidled up to the right-hand side of a Chinese art supplies shop, stood before the black front door, which was always shut even when the club was not, he buzzed the doorbell and waited. Holding the only set of keys... Albert greeted Mickey Porter and Charlie Snooks. And as was the rules, they signed in in a leather-bound book. And as the personal guests of members, John and Anne Kavanagh were welcomed in and ascended the stairs. Where less than an hour later, Mickey Porter would be dead. The Rosendale was a family business, and that's the way Albert liked it. As if you created a nice friendly atmosphere, it attracts nice people with good intentions. So his host was his wife Sarah, behind the bar was Denise, his stepdaughter, and Marcia, a family friend, was waitress. Eager to repair its bad reputation, the first floor bar, although just 40 feet deep, by 15 feet at its widest and barely 6 feet at its thinnest, It had been sumptuously decorated in an early 1970s chic, with plush green carpets and curtains, striped multicoloured wallpaper, and the limited space carefully adorned by three plush bronquettes with two knee-high tables at each, three stools, an upright piano in the far corner, a tiny mirror-panelled bar just under the alcove of the stairs, as well as the usual, a cigarette machine, a payphone, and a ladies' and gents' toilets upstairs and down, with a small kitchen out back, from which Sarah would exit carrying trays of sandwiches to keep the punters perky. Normally, the second-floor bar would be open too, but with Clifford Perry feeling unwell, only the first-floor bar was open that night, and with standing room only, 50 people would make it feel crowded. As the night rolled on, the people rolled in, and having reassured her that the Rosendale was in safe hands, Cabaret star Kerry Lane returned and entertained the small but enthusiastic crowd of old members and new guests with a merry mix of jazz, blues and folk on the piano. As always, according to the signing-in book, the first into the Rosendale that night was Colin Cooper, Jim Ryan and Noddy three cheery regulars who had a quick swig with Albert and left by 11. Later, as it filled up, familiar faces could be seen, like Dave the Tout, Lenny Fields, Lou the Jew, Dancing Charlie, Scotch Bobby and Little Ted. With Carol and Monica, the hostesses from Maria's Club on Archer Street sat by Kerry Lane on the piano. And a couple of larger groups, like Playboy Roy, with his wife Coral, their friend Iris, his brother Terry, Terry's wife Carol and Mr and Mrs Harwood, who'd wisely grabbed a bonquette, with Peter Goody, Jackie Hunt and their friends Peter and Sheila Kennedy on another. Stood by the bar was a stylish group, with 22-year-old Ian Duran, a second-hand car dealer, dressed like a dude in a maroon velvet blazer, black trousers and polo neck, colours which accentuated his pale complexion his pal Terry Haynes, an 18-year-old plumber's mate who, in a snazzy yellow shirt with a dog's tooth pattern and a fawn pullover, looked the dog's bollocks, and Ian's half-sisters, Barbara Alley, a factory worker in a mauve jumper, a pink miniskirt and blonde streaked hair, and June Lawrence, a red-headed barmaid, adorned in a white woolen jumper, blue hot pants and grey knee-length boots as well as brothers Matt and John Riley necking beers by the bar with Matt's wife Marilyn, who supped a vodka and lemonade, while stood by John and Ann Kavanagh, Charlie Snooks and Mickey Porter. And although most people had signed in, with the exceptions of Matt Riley, who cockily decided that he was above that, and non-members like Ian Duran, who scribbled the name Davis as he thought this was funny, Although there were barely 35 patrons in the club, it was hard to put a name to a face. So far, it was a regular night, and with the lights down, the music playing, and the drinks flowing, they drank, they chatted, and they laughed. But someone was about to die. 12.50 a.m. From behind the bar, Denise called last orders. Best orders! Having had roughly nine or ten beers, brothers Matt and John Riley's hackles were up, as John unsubtly insinuated that Matt's wife Marilyn was seeing someone else. Not wanting to offend her further, John said, Outside, not in front of your wife. And although tensions ran high, disputes did happen and very little notice was taken so their argument is pieced together by fragments overheard by others. Stood at the top of the stairs, Matt shouted, Leave me alone, I can handle it. John replied, I'm your brother, stick with your family, not your friends. To which Matt retorted, You think you're grown up, just because you're bigger than me. And seeing the Dubliners' tensions rise, Albert wisely unlocked the black front door and ushered the brothers outside into Newport Place. And for a few minutes, as the club's patrons muttered, ogled and giggled, being briefly distracted by the siblings' standoff, there was a spark of excitement. But being flesh and blood, the brothers' tempers cooled as quickly as their beers warmed. And so, with a smile, a hug and a "ha oh, forget about it!'' Matt and John were let back in, Albert locked the door and led them both back upstairs to the club. 12.57am Winding down her usual musical repertoire, Kerry started playing the anniversary waltz. Denise poured the last bevies of the night and Sarah served a final round of sarnies amongst the half-starved regulars. The night was over. What happened next is uncertain. According to witnesses, the club was dark, the room was tight, and everyone was otherwise occupied. Or so they say. So this too is pieced together from fragments. As Sarah exited the kitchen, a tray of sandwiches in hand, she's squeezed by four men engaged in a lively debate. But over the music, she couldn't hear what was said. By the piano, Norma Bennett said she heard shoving and a fight. But again, she heard no words. At the farthest part of the bar, Matt Riley heard screaming and bottles breaking. And although Ian Duran's half-sisters stood by the cigarette machine just three feet away, Barbara Alley later said, I didn't hear what they were talking about. And yet, June Lawrence swore she heard Mickey Porter say, Forget it, have a drink. As to who the four men were, two were tall men and two were shorter. One wore a maroon jacket, one a light beige sweater, one a white flowered shirt and one, who we know, was Mickey Porter. The most reliable account of the night came from Albert Griffiths, the club's co-owner, who stood just a few feet away in the doorway. But even his statements are understandably vague. Having heard a ruckus, Albert said, I saw a fellow in a light blue blazer, who we now know was Mickey, rush across the floor screaming, You can have it now, you, you c- have it now! You and can you I saw he had a broken glass in his right hand. And as Mickey slashed the jagged glass shard across the pale face of his intended target, as the man's left cheek bled profusely, a river of blood dripped and disappeared onto his similarly coloured jacket. Standing nearby, in his yellow dogs tooth shirt, Ian Duran's pal Terry Haynes feared for his life. As he later stated, The next thing I know, Mickey was waving a broken glass about. I saw someone hit the floor. At this point, Albert intervened. I immediately dived in. I jumped on him from the back. And in the chaos, someone said that someone pulled a knife, and someone said that someone pulled a gun. And then suddenly, everything went silent. Lou Fisher said he heard a pop and he saw a flash. Norma heard four shots, Barbara heard three, Matt heard only two, and yet Roy heard six. Whereas June heard none. And yet across the crowded room, Kerry dived under her piano, having heard two loud bangs, and a woman screaming, Terry, don't, he's got a gun! Terry said, Then I heard a bang. I I went on the floor. I I crouched down in case there was any bullets flying about. The gun went off again. I saw a man charging at me. It was Mickey Porter. He was like a wild man. Amongst a sea of panicking people who fled the club, the four men dashed into the darklit stairwell. Swiftly pursued by a seething Mickey clutching a bloody broken bottle, Albert said as I jumped on the guy with the glass from behind I heard rapid explosions three or four shots I felt pain in my hand and spun round and finished up slumped down outside the door I was dazed for a few seconds I got up and the fellow I'd grabbed ran past me and down the stairs from the stairwell John Riley heard the shots And someone said, he's been done, he's been done. Playboy Roy recalled, I saw Albert standing there, looking down the stairs. He was all dazed. I took his arm and pulled him into the club, as a steady stream of blood oozed from Albert's trembling hand. As the people panicked, a bottleneck of petrified punters formed by the first floor door, jamming the club's only exit as the stairwell rammed full of sweaty, screaming faces. As at the bottom, the people banged on the door, screaming, ''Open the door! Let us out! Where's the keys?'' Having been nicked by a bullet fragment, as Sara tried to stem her husband's bleeding fist with a tea towel, Albert shouted, ''Lou, take those keys and open the front door!'' Clutching the only set, Lou squeezed down the sweat-soaked stairwell, and with a quick jangle and a click, yanked open the black front door, and like a violently fizzing cork stuck in a boisterous champagne bottle, a sea of people spilled into Newport Place. Some ran to phone the police, some sat in shock on the pavement, and others simply disappeared. At the bottom of the stairs... By the open black door, with his head slumped on the second step and his body slumped on the floor, lay Mickey Porter, belly down and curled up, his eyes wide and unblinking as a steady froth of blood oozed from his raspy lungs, as slowly his life slipped away. Albert said, I remember someone saying the man was dead. I said leave him, as I had felt a faint pulse in his neck. It was Lou who called for an ambulance. But being eager to escape, for whatever reason, as he lay there dying, everyone stepped over Mickey Porter, even his friends. Having entered through this door barely an hour before with Mickey, Charlie Snooks later said, I saw him lying on the stairs, mourning and groaning. And John Kavanagh said, I knew he was hurt, but I didn't know he was hurt that bad. I squeezed past with Anne and Snook, and we got into the car, where we sat and watched. And when the old Bill arrived, we just took a walk round the corner to a coffee shop. Others there that night, like Matt Riley, exclaimed, I grabbed my wife. Me and John joined the queue for the stars. I saw a man who I can't describe, lying face down on the floor. There was a lot of blood around him. His brother John said, I saw Mickey Porter lying on the stairs. I bent down and I looked at his face. I saw his eyes were staring. Matt was with me. He said to his wife, "Come on, let's go." We stepped over Mickey and we left the club. The ambulance arrived a few minutes later, and although he was rushed to Trancross Hospital, at 1:33 a.m., Michael Barry Porter, known to his pals as Mickey. Was pronounced dead. Having sealed off the Rosendale Club and Newport Place, the police investigation began. Splattered down the multicolored walls, the door, floor, and stairwell of the club, as well as across the pavement outside numbers 9, 7, and 3 Newport Place were two distinct blood groups. Type A. Typo, but being in an era before DNA, an exact match would never be found. On the bar, the stem, base and bowl of a broken and bloodied wine glass was found, but having been cleared away by someone else, part of which had been binned, with a broken glass also found under Mickey's face, whether this was a weapon or not may never be known. And with the club having had a steady flow of punters across the three hours it was open, although the police had confiscated the club's signing in book, even if the punters had all signed in, which some hadn't, and used their real names, which some hadn't, there would still be very few usable fingerprints. Police quickly recovered four spent twenty-two caliber shells found in the club. Two in the stairwell, one in the club by the main door, and one under a stool by the kitchen, where the fight began. And yet, no gun was found, no knife was recovered, there was no motive, and no name was given as to who killed Mickey Porter. At his autopsy, conducted at the Westminster Mortuary, along with an alcohol level the equivalent of 13 measures of whiskey. Dr. David Bowen found holes in Mickey's maroon polo neck, blue jacket with matching handkerchief and fawn corduroy trousers which were consistent with his injuries. With a defensive wound to his right middle finger and a one inch deep wound to the left hand side of his back, it was clear that Mickey had been stabbed using a small knife with a single edged blade. With a small wound under his right earlobe which ripped through his neck tissue, his oesophagus and embedded a bullet at the base of his heart. A small hole in the right-hand side of his back which tore through his right lung and fragmented into two lethally sharp pieces and a third hole to the left of his groin which split his pelvis and embedded into his thigh. Three bullets and two fragments were removed from Mickey's corpse. All consistent with the twenty-two caliber shells found in the Rosendale Club. His cause of death was hemorrhage by bullet wounds to the chest, meaning that, as he lay there, on the stairs, being stepped over by his closest friends, as his stomach, lungs and chest cavity ruptured, being unable to breathe, 23-year-old Mickey Porter drowned in his own blood. For the police, it should have been an open-and-shut case. An easily recognisable man, shot in a packed nightclub, surrounded by witnesses who knew him and his attacker. But it wasn't. That night, of the three cars identified at the scene, a red Wolsey, a black Ford Mustang and a white Mini Clubman, two were missing. Of those people who hadn't fled the scene, More than 300 witness statements were taken, and most of those were either vague, wrong, misleading, or being unwilling to assist the police. Some eyewitnesses, for whatever reason, refused to talk. The friends who Mickey had arrived with that night were interviewed by the police, but all denied that they were ever there. John Kavanagh told the police, We did not go to a club called the Rosendale. In fact, I have never been to a club called the Rosendale. Anne Kavanagh said, I was not there that night, nor was my husband or Charlie. In fact, I have never heard of the club before. And Charlie said, I have never been to the Rosendale. In fact, I don't even know where it is. Barbara Alley and June Lawrence, who were standing next to the cigarette machine, barely three feet away from the fight itself, stated, We went to the club by ourselves. We saw very little and we left together. Failing to mention that they had arrived with Terry Haynes and Ian Duran, both of whom were now missing. When questioned, Matt Riley, who greeted Charlie Snook, John and Ann Kavanagh and Mickey Porter, in Newport Place, before entering the club together, refused to give evidence. And when asked by a policeman if they'd been in the club that night, his brother John lied, saying they hadn't. And although bloodied and dazed, having been shot and wounded, Albert Griffiths, the proprietor of the Rosendale Club, and his friend Lou Fisher... Gave possibly the clearest and most reliable eyewitness testimonies of the night, giving a description of two men the police were eager to trace. Lou Fisher stated, I ran down the stairs, and as I stepped over the boy on the floor, I saw two men, both who he described as five foot eight and early twenties, with one wearing a fawn colored top, and a young pale man in dark clothes and a maroon jacket in a semi-crouched position, with blood pouring from his hand and his face. Both men hastily left, accompanied by two girls, a blonde and a redhead. Was this a culprit, an accomplice, or maybe another victim? Unable to trace them, the police didn't know but with pools of blood found on the pavement outside Numbers 9, 7 and 3, Newport Place. They knew that someone was bleeding profusely, having been slashed with a broken glass by Mickey Porter. Albert Griffiths was treated at the Charing Cross Hospital and with two bullet fragments removed from his left thumb, he made a full recovery, aided the police and gave a sample of his blood for comparison. And as the investigation continued, the police were stymied, not only by unwilling witnesses, but also by the intimidation of witnesses by an unknown group. As although Peter Goody's testimony was next to useless, his children's lives were threatened and a police guard was placed on his home. The police had a truly monumental task. They had no fingerprints, no weapons, no culprit, and with no obvious motive, whether a word, a look, or a mistimed nudge, Mickey had made an enemy of an unknown felon who, although just four inches shorter than him, was clearly violent, easily riled, and armed with a gun. And with the witnesses being mysteriously silent, once again, the unnamed assassin of Mickey Porter got away. And yet the autopsy raised an interesting detail across the tattoo of a dagger and Mick on his right forearm and the right-hand side of his jaw, embedded under the skin, were pellets from a shotgun. For whatever reason, one year before his death, someone had shot Mickey Porter. But why and who? Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. Don't forget that if you're a murky miler, to stay tuned for extra goodies after the break. But before that, here's my recommended podcasts of the week. Which are... Christian and Damon's Amazing Nerd Show, An Assassination Podcast.
1: Interruption in progress. Now hijacking into ANS 2.0 Immersion Rig. Now simulating the Amazing Nerd Show featuring comics <laughs> and
0: Batman's like you're safe here and everything but the Joker all of a sudden pulls out a gun and shoots himself movies people fight with lightsabers what the hell do you want i mean you're every i mean in every one of these movies there's a lightsaber battle yeah no problem i am going to rewatch it a million times yeah. <laughs> i'm just saying <laughs> give me something more wrestling that would be awesome oh my god just a monster <laughs> Fans would be like, holy, what the hell's going on? <laughs> what happened to Jericho? Horror. It starts off like any other like home invasion type of story, and then it just goes crazy.
1: And more. Hey, this is Christian.
0: Hey, this is Dan. And we are The Amazing Nerd Show. Make sure to download us on all your favorite podcast platforms. Guns. Knives.
2: Poison. Bombs. Time and again, assassins have sought to change the course of history through one single, terrible act. I'm Neil Cooper, the host of Assassinations Podcast. Join me each week as I explore the darker side of history. New episodes are released every Monday and are available on iTunes and our website, assassinationspodcast.com. A huge thank you goes out to my new Patreon supporters, who are Scott Denny and Carol Wood. With a warm thank you to everyone who has left a lovely review of Murder Mile on iTunes or on your favourite podcast catcher. I do read them all, they are hugely appreciated, and to each and every one of you, I thank you. It only takes a minute to do a review, but for small, independent podcasts like myself, it really does make the difference. Murder Mile was researched, written, and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult with No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well.
0: Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it.
1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
2: Friends, before we dive into Extra Mile, this is your pre-Extra Mile. Just to say that the Extra Mile you're about to hear was recorded in April 2019, and this is currently June 2019. This episode of Murder Mile was originally going to be the first episode in the season. But as some of you know, uh, I took this out of the running order just because I feel the I felt the episode wasn't quite right. You're kind of used to hearing uh, stories about a sympathetic character who was murdered. And as I mentioned at the start, this episode doesn't have that at all. It's an entirely different episode. And having already edited it, I re-listened through to it a couple of times and I realised it was just a little bit too different to what you're used to. So I made the decision to pull it out of the running order. This was going to be the first episode and I've made it the fifth episode. So that's why we've had the Jacqueline Berry, the uh, Daisy Wallace and the uh, Reginald Gordon West episodes. They're very much kind of the, your regular Murder Mile episodes. So I felt this was better suited a little bit further into, into the system and with a disclaimer like this. Um this is so what i'm going to do now i'm going to play you the original extra mile that i recorded back in april with that episode this is the original one so just to say there'll be things in there that uh you might already know or there will be details that you'll go oh that's changed it's wrong but don't worry about that this is i just thought it would be better for you to hear it as it was how it how it was original at the time so that's the way it's going to be i hope that's okay um also i felt when i was re-listening back to the episodes uh instead of playing this out first episode on one week and then part 2 the next week because you don't have an emotional connection to the episode to the characters i didn't feel that there was a reason for you, for me to drag out a week for you to th- spend all your time thinking oh oh i hope i hope judith's okay or something like that whoever the character is because you you really you won't care about the characters in here really trust me I mean you've already listened to it already it's you'll get to part two and you'll find them frustrating and that's really what I wanted so that's why I felt this is better to play out a two-parter but at the same time so Here's going to be the extra mile coming up, the original one. Part two of the Rosendale murder should have already downloaded. It should already be in your system. So you may have looked at it today and gone, oh, why have I got two versions of the same? You haven't got two versions of the same. It's a two-parter. Hopefully you haven't deleted the second one. Uh, Anyway, this is the original extra mile. Ooh. And we're back, we're back. I'm standing a bit dif- distant because I'm just opening the window, uh, doing my usual, just opening the door because obviously, oh, in order to make sure that this is soundproofed, I have to close all the windows and doors. Hang on, doors open. Oh, there we go, that's better. Fresh air, that's nice. Got a couple of tea. cup of tea on windows open, curtains open, lights off, oh that feels so much better, oh dear, welcome everyone, welcome to Extra Mile, uh, oh if, if you're new to Murder Mile, if you've joined us in the last couple of weeks and you're, this is the first real proper Murder Mile that we've come to, uh, you're probably thinking what's this, this is Extra Mile, uh, this is, oh just sc- having a little scratch on my arm then, there you go, Uh uh, this is Extra Mile. This is the uh, unedited, unscripted bit. But what I do is I kind of feed in extra interesting things for you that might you might not have heard in the episode. Uh, so, this is Extra Mile. I haven't done one of these in a while, so I'm a little bit discombobulated today. Switch light off. Get cu- comfy with pi- pillows. Oh, there we go. Uh, so, whew. welcome everyone. Welcome back. Thank you for coming back. Uh, this is extra mile. <laughs> what am I meant to do? I've forgotten. I've, literally, this is weird. Like having to write Murder Mile again, having not written Murder Mile for when was the last one I wrote? Probably Christmas, yeah, uh, with the Reg Christies. So, I had i actually had to go back and look at the old scripts to work out how I write Murder Mile because I'd entirely forgotten. Uh, but that was good fun. I enjoyed that. Um, really good fun. So, what am I doing at the moment? I'm on the boat for those of you who don't know, I record this on a boat, Uh, hopefully you think the sound is good, and it sounds good, and you think, oh, I bet he records all this in a lovely studio, and he's got a team of people behind him, and like all those, like, you know, everyone listens to Dirty John, uh, all those famous podcasts, they're all made by teams of people, but in, in big studios, and it's all posh and exciting, and very, yeah, Independent podcasters like ourselves, mine is a laptop with a microphone in front of me and then I spend hours cleaning up all the audio to make sure it sounds good. And I've got, um, I don't have a studio, I have a shoebox. Literally there's a shoebox filled with sponges in front of me and that deadens some of the sound uh, because it's quite noisy at the moment. People, I'm on the towpath because I live on a boat, so people going past. There was a man a little while ago decided to have a little sing outside my boat. He was having a good old sing-along. For some unknown reason. Uh, coots outside were having a bit of a to-do. Uh, there was a Skylark in the... In the... Um, uh, the. Oh! My brain's gone... T- uh, trees! The trees! I've forgotten the word for trees. Trees above me. Having a good old sing as well. Which was a bit annoying. Uh, I'm on the Heathrow flight path today. So I, I have to record for 90 seconds. And then stop every 90 seconds. Because the, the planes are so loud. And also... Kettle's going.
0: Uh...
2: Because I'm on, I'm on, hang on. Not too far away is North Holt, RAF North Holt. So there's a lot of Chinooks that fly over. So they're the, the big twin-engined, uh, twin-rotored uh, helicopters uh, that transport military personnel over. And also ooh, Royals as well. Oh, Cape Middleton. Ooh, um... Uh, so they, that flies over a lot as well. There's a lot of private aircraft. So it literally is. You record for thirty seconds, then you stop. But weirdly, it's gone very quiet. I'm just making a cup of tea. I'm having uh, I'm having one of the Welsh tea. So thank you to uh, Vicky at Sticky Sound Zines I'm having one of your Welsh teas today. Oh, are they? But I hope that's I hope when I drink it, I get a better Welsh accent. What right, do right, what's what's to do, then? And in case you're asking, yes, powdered milk in my tea. Sugar, powdered milk. Uh, and... Oh, ooh, oh, I almost spilt my tea, then. And uh, Asda Oaty Crumbles. Milk chocolate Oaty Crumbles. I'm not going to eat them during the podcast, because I know people don't like that. But, oh, they're nice. I like... They're, they're like cheapy hobnobs, but the chocolate is, is very good. It's very thick. So... Um, How's everything here all good coots are outside having a bit of a to do they were having a bit of a fight this morning uh there are a couple of more hens out there's a couple of uh swans uh I saw an otter yesterday, which was very nice uh update so uh, I think w- since we last spoke, I was in the boat yard I took the boat out of the water uh repair did some repairs which is nice you take the boat out of the water and then you can can black the bottom you you kind of uh you get like put a black bitumen on you strip it or strip off all the old stuff uh and then you re-black it and that was good fun i did that i did some repairs i got the engine serviced i'm getting a guy to come in to put some new covers on the boat tomorrow some new uh hand-stitched covers so that's very nice uh so yeah it's all going well here it's all good so this is extra mile. Did we think that we would get uh, another extra mile? I didn't. I certainly didn't think after the, after the little Christmas wobble, the little w- wibbly wobbly. Um, I, think, I think I think I think. Do you know what? Even though it was a bit of a weird moment when I had, I had my wobble, I just got I just got a bit too stressed out uh, with the, uh, I think I'd, I'd done too much work. I hadn't had a break in. Even though I kept saying to myself, "Oh, I'm going to take a break," but I never did. I'd do ten minutes, then I'd go to the archives for a couple of weeks. Which I love, but it's not resting. So, um, and also, there, I won't go into it, but there were some legal problems as well, which I finally sorted out. Uh, someone, uh, someone threatened me with core action. And it turned out it wasn't what I thought it was. It just turned out to be a, a bit of a nutter. So, uh, but that was good in a way, because what it did was, I, I'd already started to become a little bit tired of making murder because they're quite exhausting um and obviously i cancelled murder mile so we all remember that when i said it's over it's over and do you know what everyone was really lovely everyone sent lovely messages not just not just we're sorry to hear that like people some people had really really written some really really lovely emails just just telling me what murder mile means to them it really meant a lot to me it really did and I think deep down I didn't want Murder Mile to go at all. So obviously I made the decision. I was like, right, you know, maybe maybe I'll do the multi-parters and then I'll roll them out when I feel they're ready. So I'm not under the pressure of a deadline anymore, which is good. Um, but, you know, as and then I thought, oh, do you know, I, lo- I do love the comedy bits. Do you know, when I have a little bit more fun with it. And I was like, oh, I wonder if I could do that. And I'd already kind of been coming up with other murder mile ideas remember i was saying before that i was going to do maybe a history podcast or some kind of factual things i was working on those ideas i did a storytelling one i was working on that i wrote a couple of stories for that which are are rolled out in mini mile at some point um but as i kept going on i kept thinking oh do you know there's still loads oh i've got burpees still loads of ideas that i really wanted to play with for uh murder mile but not put them into murder mile because sometimes i think the comedy the sarcasm in murder mile itself works in a way because it's I, i'd like to put across the card of kind of world wear, weariness of myself in london because i've lived here a long time and you kind of you used to seeing things and I'm, i get a bit fed up with it but so it's more kind of sarcasm but the comedy bit sometimes it jars against murder mile and i was like oh i want to i want to do something where i could just have be a bit more silly and have a lot more fun so um that's where Minimal came from and literally I, I think you can tell if you listen to the first one it's kind of i'm interested i'm passionate about it and things i want to do but i'm a little bit tentative i don't know how to play with things but as it goes on i think episode f- minimile three and then four then especially like five and six and seven it's like i'm just like i don't care anymore i'm just gonna have fun i'm just gonna have a right old giggle uh so yeah no so i've really enjoyed doing that so um so that was really good it was really good so uh yeah no so we so we added in mini Mer- minimal now um because mini obviously you know that kind of murder mile takes like seven days to do an episode just to record write record and edit but also the research on top which is kind of demanding when you're doing one a week uh but mini was really good it's kind of they were they, they take me like a day to research a day to write and then i can pretty much cuz cuz i can do it in one go i can kind of edit it in about half a day it's always less than that really sometimes it can take just two days to do an episode so those first seven episodes i did in about two weeks i literally bulldozed them and i was like well i'm not planning to go back to murder mile till may and this was this was you know march time so i thought eh, i'm not far from the archives i'm only i'm only about 7 miles away i think so I thought, you know what, I'll go to the archives. So it was good exercise. I was walking every day, so I was, do, I was doing like uh, uh, each month I was walking half a million steps. <laughs> nice, burnt off a couple of calories. But I went to the archives every day and f- had a look at some files, uh, some murder files that I hadn't seen before, and they were really interesting. It was really, really good fun. So, uh, uh, so that spurred me on to plan in the next couple of murder mile episodes. So we 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 literally uh going to be doing i know this is meant to be the multi-parter the big multi-parter it's not the big multi-parter this is uh this is meant to be a single episode which turned into a multi-parter so we'll have about 15 single episodes i might throw a break in there if i need a break uh and then we'll do the multi-parter and then we'll do some mini miles Uh, Because they're good fun. I think everyone's enjoying those. Uh, And then that will lead us to Christmas. Which will be good. So, um, yeah. So, hopefully, loads of episodes up until the end of the year. But, obviously, my new rule is I will take a break if I need a break. So, But, at the moment, I'm really enjoying this. This is good fun. It's not too stressful. And this was an episode I really enjoyed. So... Don't expect any new other episodes from Major, the history ones, the factual ones. They've all been I've told ACAS this. I've told them that the ideas I pitched them, I've incorporated into Minimile. Basically a lot of the ideas are in Minimile or I will use elsewhere. So uh yeah, that was good. That was good. So but yeah, no, I enjoy I, I, mean, I hope you enjoyed Minimile as well. I quite enjoyed that. You know, it's uh so so that's the way things are gonna go though, so even though I had the wobble, it's actually, Minimile has actually been re- a really useful tool to define everything that I want about Murder Mile, so it will be, Minimile will be the home of the kind of trivia and comedy, so that's where all that goes, Murder Mile, these episodes will be your storytelling, but there will be, you know, as usual, my, the hints of sarcasm, but there won't be comedy bits at the start or the end, or, so don't, messaged me and saying oh can we have some more comedy in murder one no this is this is this is about storytelling i don't want to i don't want to sully the story or the kind of the victim's families uh by having too much comedy in there the sarcasm's welcome but not everything else whereas the waffle obviously <laughs> remains in extra mile which is where we are now the waffly bit way no editing which i kind of nice it's nice it's nice when you edit when you're editing uh, like obviously, mini mile easy to edit. It's good fun, and I can do it in about four hours. Murder mile is a real bitch to edit. It's like even the first five minutes can take a day because that really is the bit one. Like you, you may think it's a, a, a thread, and like a, I pick up a soundtrack and of road, and I just put it in, and you go, oh, that sounds nice, a bit of road. That is literally me adding in every single sound, birdsong. There's some bird song for you there. I didn't add that in. Uh, all the 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 uh cars going past i i plan them in at specific moments so so it so it leaves a bit of a breath in between sentences when it's useful but it doesn't seem like there's uh, an obvious gap it just something for your ears to enjoy so i i spend hours playing with the sounds like really getting the levels right and getting them to fade correctly so the first 10 minutes are a real bitch real bitch but you know they're good fun oh so so that will be uh how murder mile is going to be that's all good that's very exciting so uh okay so we uh oh, i'm gonna have a little swig i'm gonna move away from the microphone and have a swig did that quietly oh cup of tea welsh tea all right but all right but what's i do then what's i do then obviously oh i should say if you if you listen to uh um laney's podcast um the True Crime Fan Club one. Uh, whether it's gone out recently, I, I mean, this, this episode goes out on May the 2nd. Uh, but I, she asked me to do a story for her that uh, a listener had um, written into her and they needed an accent. Uh, I know, accents. I, maybe I'm the, the, uh, the accent man. But they needed someone who could do a voice of uh, someone who was uh, Welsh. And when I looked at it, I was like, oh, this is all based in Cardiff. Cardiff or uh, uh, Bargoyd uh and i was like yeah i can do that because uh, obviously I, I went to university in south wales for three years so I can, I can do i can do the welsh so if you listen to laney's podcast uh you will hear me and it's it's about half an hour long of me me doing all right but I, I try not to do all right but what's i do then but i did a quite a nice kind of Cardiff accent so uh i'll try and find you a link to that oh i've got something in my eye that's really annoying oh dear there we go so researching these new cases these new murder miles the mini not mini miles the single episodes uh so went to the archives uh forgot how much i love the archives i really do you just sit there all day i abuse their wi-fi because they've got fantastic wi-fi and the great thing is you can go there and they have a system where which most places should have where they shut off uh any phone connection system, uh, uh, reception so when you're in the room you walk into the room and instantly your phone goes no signal emergency only which is great i think most i think loads of places should have that but they're really good wi-fi so i go there because i don't have um uh obviously full running electricity here it's like off batteries on the boat so uh to get my laptop powered up i plug into there i take my ipad with me <laughs> i go onto like uh, bbc i play more four and i download SuperVet. Uh, eight out of ten cats does count <laughs> uh some true crime but not too much i've got really gone off true crime uh and uh, other stuff like that so it was really good really really good uh so going there i had a real blast it was really good because i think i found my mojo again which was which was missing over christmas with the, the old whole wobble thing but uh i you know uh, picking up the old files i forgot how much i love it you you get the file you know nothing about it i knew nothing about all of these cases you literally get it you get the file uh all you see is date and a location and maybe a name and you open it up and you go right what it's about what's it about and it's great it's like a it's like a dropped novel it's like someone has got a novel taken out all the page numbers dropped it on the floor you've scooped up all the pages together and you've gone right and you realize you're on page 137 and you go right what the hell is this about so it's great it's really good and i love doing it because it's it's it helps me oh i'm getting a cold it's not a cold it's um uh, talking too much talking too much i'm getting blocked up nose um it's really good because by uh researching it this way by no not knowing what it's about in advance i kind of i find that it helps me find the story within So instead of just opening up the file and someone's done a precy on the front and you go, on this date, this man was shot and he was shot by this man. It's like, I opened up this case and I went, I thought I knew something about it. I knew that someone who was shot called Mickey Porter or Michael Porter. I knew the club was called Rosendale. That's all I knew. And I I thought, it's going to be some geezers who does shoot each other. And it's kind of like that. But the more I read into the case, the more I found all these details, which made it really interesting. Which is why this has become a three-parter. Originally, in my head, I'd put this down as a one-parter. I thought, this is going to be an in-and-out. I, I can take the piss out of geezers. All right, mate, you looked at me bad. You, yeah, yeah i was going to shoot you because I'm a geezer. But it wasn't. Um, this ended up being quite a different story. Even though that might come across in part one, this is very different anyway the, there's some great new cases coming up i was really quite normally i go through a, and there's normally there's a few cases where i read them and i go ah this is a bit shit but i'd say the bulk of them are all very different all these cases coming up they you look at them and you think i think i know where this is going and then you, you're like oh shit that's very different there's some are different some are shocking some are weird some of them in there are just mysteries they really are so uh they're gonna be uh upcoming soon another swig oh it's good cup of tea cup of tea uh if you uh just to say uh tea tastes so much better if you're drinking it from a murder mile mug available from the murder mile merch shop uh, uh, and with all murder mile mugs now also not only do you get badges and stickers and fridge magnets and a thank you card from me and i've stopped doing the ones with the sweets because as we all know to everyone out there who received one the sweets had a tendency to melt and there's quite a few people I, I appreciate how lovely everyone was about this that they they waited for their murder Mom mug and then they received it and went it's a bit sticky and in some cases it was basically just goo so i very much appreciate everyone for being so kind with that it was it was something in my boat they were fine but when they went overseas or wherever they just melt for some reason uh, cheapy sweets anyway Oh yeah, no. Uh, so to say, with the mug, you also get you also get a, uh, an official Murky Miler badge as well. I've I've made uh, about a hundred of them, and they're available. So they they come with each uh, mug now as well. And all you, you can buy them separately as well. Right, merchandising over the Rose story. The, the story of the Rose and Club. Club. Um, I'd heard little bits about it. There's not really much in the press about it, except you know, it just says that someone, some, such and such, was shot. Um, now what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to give you any spoilers on this I'm going to be a a little bit I'm going to stand off away from this a little bit more because obviously episode 2 is important it tells you everything you need to know and then episode 3 is a continuation but um, it is quite a complicated story uh, and what I wanted to do was try and get across to you the idea of what an uphill struggle the police really had with this case so you're probably listening to this this episode and going oh it's, oh, my head hurts who is who and what's what because normally I focus on one person but this is not this is about a whole club so what I wanted to do is get across to you what the police had to come up with uh, what, what they were faced with so therefore in order to kind of make it a little bit easier for you to understand I've tried to focus on details such as people's clothes and their hair and their height um, just so because you've heard about what 30 names in there what I want to do and you know uh you won't know who is who and what the relationship to who and who is and you know um what I'm trying to do is 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 lay down what people said at this moment and then so you can get an idea of the club and what happened and then we can move into the the truth of it later on the truth and the fiction of what people have said so although I'm focusing on people's hair and uh clothes and height and things like that um it's worth considering the idea this is what we'll go into on the next episode as well that you'll probably think about this episode going okay who was who and who was who and who was standing with who and because i've given you some details but the problem is with some of these details if you speak to five people about one person and you say what does that person what is that person you can't see them now but what did they what did they look like tonight and people will go well uh, he was wearing a yellow shirt then someone else will say he was wearing a white sweater. And someone else will say he was wearing a pale jumper. Uh, now, this could be three different people. Or it could be the same person. You don't know. It's, it's, it's hard. People have different... Little, little words can make a real difference. Like with some of these these characters. People said, um, who was such and such standing with? And they go, this person was... He was five foot eight. Someone else would say he was five foot ten. Some people said he was five foot, uh, six foot tall. Is that the same person or is it a different person? Sometimes in the same witness statements, people will say this person was blonde, this person was a redhead, this person was a brunette. Could be a different person, could be the same person. And that's the problem is people get details wrong. They, they, they As they say, your visual memory is only about 30% accurate. And the human eye only sees about 5%. It's like because we're predators, like we look forward, so our eyes focus on a point so the point you're looking at now is what you actually see but everything else around that you don't see it because we have incredibly tunnel vision so your your brain interprets everything else based on what it's already seen uh so it's you 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 only see about five percent of what really is there in front of you um so what i was doing with the, the episode was trying to get across to you ideas of where people said they were standing what time things happened what happened in what kind of order do you know uh, the the fight was there a fight uh, there was a glassing if you remember that there was a stabbing although no one really saw the stabbing but clearly mickey was stabbed because it was on, it was on his autopsy and obviously there was the shooting with the gun how many shots were there fired there were well as we know there were four shots in mickey there were three bullets and two fragments so is that three bullets uh, there were four casings on the floor, certainly, that the police found. So uh, uh, so who saw the stabbing? Did anyone see the stabbing? Uh, why is it that people at the far side of the bar seemed to see and hear things clearer than people who were standing right next to Mickey Porter? Uh, and why, why, interestingly, in a club that was relatively small and people seemed to know each other, why was no one able to identify who the killer was? strange isn't it it's a really weird thing um so this is part one uh this is all the pieces coming together it's deliberately complicated i've deliberately i've i've it's a i've i've made it a simplified complicated one because trust me i've sat here all the way through it trying to write it and then literally go into my list at the left going hang on who was weighing what hang on oh, hang on what height was he what color was oh man and literally having to so i've had to simplify it for you because even for me it's just like my head is ready to explode but hopefully it will all make sense in uh in part two which will be out next week which is very exciting it's a three-parter uh so uh yes but i i'll, I'll mark it this won't be a three-parter well i'll turn it into a five-parter this is a three-parter there's, there's enough for three and that's it uh so that's it. I'm not gonna tell you any more because I don't want to ruin it for you. Um if you're looking at this episode and you're thinking, hang on, that sounds familiar. You you've mentioned uh West End of Chinatown, you've mentioned Newport Place. Um and it's a big old piazza. If you've been on my walk, um i I try not to give too much away because for those who haven't been on my walk but the penultimate location when i do the conclusion of the soho strangler story i point to you a location which is above the canton this is the this is the building immediately next door to it so you've got the canton and the the way i point to the uh the duck in the window uh the door immediately left to the to the left of that on the right hand side that literally is this building right here so yeah murders right next to each other which is all very exciting uh, uh, and uh, there was uh, loads of uh, autopsy pictures and crime scene photos so i've got loads of those so i'll be putting those on social media so if you do um if you want to see those uh you can either go to my website i'll put them on my website which is murder mile uh, com, and uh click on uh podcast all the old episodes are there and I've, I've got some all the videos are on there as well so if you want to see what these locations look like they're on there there's also the murder map so you can see where these locations are based uh, i also put on pictures on there but i'll put all, the, all those on there as well or uh there's the murder mile true crime podcast discussion group on facebook um uh, my uh, instagram account i'll put some on twitter but uh yeah no um uh, i'm on there so uh have a good old poke around and see what you like Whew, so that's it that was it that was difficult Do you know what was really difficult about that story i woke up this morning and I, I because i realized that um the location number nine newport place on the ground floor used to be a place called the china buffet and I was like, oh, great, okay, try I'll put So I put that in the script because I knew it was there. Then I went did my tour yesterday and I went, oh, God, it's now changed to uh, IQ a Japanese buffet. So I had to change the story. But because I did that, I totally forgot to sit down and work out what voices I was going to do, which is really, really annoying. I kept saying to myself, because it's like a cast of 20 characters, I need to work out what everyone's voice is. Uh, Unfortunately, I didn't do that. So I had to do that while I was while I was doing the story. I was like, oh, right, okay. I need a voice for Matt. Okay, so Matt's Irish. Oh, he's got a brother, so he needs to be Irish as well. Then I realised I couldn't qu- clearly do a Dublin accent. So I did a kind of a Belfast accent, I think. Then there was Albert. Then there was Terry. Oh, then there was Lou. Charlie. Charlie, I, had to, I put him in as Welsh. He's not Welsh, but I had to put him in as Welsh because... There are so many geysers in the story. I wanted it to be different. So just so we can identify these characters. Barbara's in there. June's in there. Mickey. Mickey Porter. uh, Playboy Roy. I haven't made up these names. These are real names. Uh, John Kavanagh. His wife, Anne. Uh, Who else is in there? God, there's loads. I need to... I had to scribble down a list as I was going through to work out uh, who was going to be what voice. I think some of these I may need to uh, edit. Anyway, that's me done. That was extra mile. Hope you liked it. Uh, I am now going off to <laughs> do my recycling because I'm a good boy. Even though I know that most of our recycling doesn't get recycled. Did you know that if you, put, if you put things in your recycling and you haven't washed them out, they don't get recycled? Do you know if you have those, metal, uh, those foil trays that you cook with? Uh, and you don't wash those out, those don't get recycled either. Do you know if you have a Coke bottle and you don't take off the cap and the little bit underneath the cap, the bit that breaks off, you know if you don't separate those, they don't get recycled because they're different types of plastic. I think on some of them as well, if you don't take the label off as well, the label doesn't get recycled. It's weird, and a lot of councils, what I've realised, because I move around a lot, some councils are really good at recycling Others are really terrible. So I'm going to do my recycling today uh, because I'm a good boy. I'm going to take my bike down to Halfords. We're going to get that serviced and fixed. Oh, trying to get so much done. And then we're going to edit this. I say we, it's me, isn't it? It's me. We're going to edit this this afternoon and tomorrow. uh, And then hopefully uh, Wednesday I can start writing uh, uh, episode 59, which is part two of the Rosendale murder. (gasps) So... Hope you enjoyed that. Can't remember how to edit, uh, how to end these episodes. You know that. Anyway, this is the end of the episode. Uh, Love to you all. Hope you're all well. And uh, come back to uh, Murder Mile soon. Yeah, need to work out an ending, don't I? Anyway, tatty bye. Bye. Hold
1: up.